0: Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening.
1: Absentee ballots with incomplete addresses will not be counted after a Dane County court judge rejected an attempt to overturn guidance of the state's election commission. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the judge turned down a request by the League of Women Voters to reject the requirement that the witness address of the absentee ballots be complete. The judge stated changing the rules for certifying ballots less than two weeks before an election would lead to confusion by voters and by election officials.
0: Wisconsin's unemployment rate is low in most areas, but in Dane County, it's extremely low. According to a report released today by the Department of Workforce Development, the unemployment rates in Sun Prairie, Fitchburg, and Madison are the lowest in the state at 2.5%. The highest rates are in Beloit, Racine, and Milwaukee at nearly 5% unemployed. Overall unemployment rates have decreased or stayed the same in most regions of the state over the past year.
1: After being on, uh, placed on hold for months, the Dane County jail consolidation project received two new budget amendments in an attempt to bring a new jail to fruition. The current Dane County jail was built in the 1950s and has been called unsafe and borderline unconstitutional by Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett. But the price tag to build a new jail has steadily risen over the past two years, leading to the project uh, leading the project to sit millions of dollars above budget. One of the proposed amendments, written by County Board Chair Patrick Miles, would cut the size of the jail by one floor and significantly redesign the layout of those existing floors. Meanwhile, another budget amendment, this time submitted by District 3 Supervisor Annalise Eicher, would simply give the project an extra $13.5 million to get the project back on track. Both amendments will be discussed by the county board over the next few weeks. That's according to the Capital Times.
0: The man charged with the theft of the head of the statue of Hans Christian Hegg on the Capitol Square has agreed to plead guilty and receive a penalty of one-year probation and a $1,000 fine, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. During the Black Lives Matter protests of June 2020, the statue of the Civil War hero was pulled down and his head broken off. The head was placed in the car of the man who drove off with it in his trunk, this summer, the statue was restored to the King Street entrance of the Capitol. The man was initially charged with felony theft, but was that was later reduced to misdemeanor theft following his return of the head.
1: A private COVID testing company has been fined over $22,000 by state and county officials for misleading advertisements on their COVID tests. The Center for COVID Control opened COVID testing sites across the country, including six here in Dane County. The state's consumer protection agency fined the company today for advertising 48-hour test results, but people taking those tests regularly did not receive their test results within that time frame. The Center for COVID Control first opened in Dane County in December of 2020 and closed their doors in January of this year after receiving national attention as a potential scam.
0: Those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Two of Wisconsin's Democratic lawmakers in Washington were joined by the U.S. Secretary of Labor today on a tour of the newly renovated Laborers Apprenticeship and Training Center in DeForest. There, they highlighted some of the work the Biden administration has done to help workers both in Wisconsin and across the country. Never one to be left out. Our producer, Nate Wegehaup, headed over to DeForest today to join them.
2: Now located just off of I-90, the Leuna Training Center started in around 1973 in Portage County. It's now run by the Wisconsin Laborers' District Council, an organization of five labor unions across the state. The DeForest Training Center first opened in 2004 and has expanded multiple times since then. It's filled with rooms where people training to be apprentices, learn different styles of concrete pouring, welding equipment, and spider-like digging machines. The training center prepares and helps certify over 3,500 workers every year. Today, the training center was the staging ground for Senator Tammy Baldwin, Representative Mark Pocan, and Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. They were there to tout the creation of union jobs under President Biden, pointing to recent legislation like the federal bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act. According to the most recent report from the State Department of Workforce Development, there are currently over 600,000 workers in construction and manufacturing in Wisconsin. And according to the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics, just over 9% of all workers in Wisconsin were represented by a union last year. After watching students practice with heavy machinery and learn more about the trades, the trio spoke about the importance of union labor. Senator Tammy Baldwin started the press conference by talking about her efforts in helping to fund apprenticeship programs.
1: And um, we are uh, including uh, $303 million in the upcoming fiscal uh, year 2023 legislation, which is actually a $65 million increase over last year.
2: After taking a few jabs at her Republican counterpart in the U.S. Senate, Ron Johnson, Representative Mark Pocan then spoke about the importance of not just creating jobs, but creating good paying jobs. These are really great programs where you can uh, be working and learning and and carrying a paycheck home uh, so that you're able to, after going through the program that you've seen today, uh, make a really great family-supporting wage and have a career uh, working in an area that's helping to build things uh, in our community. U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh finished today's press conference by comparing working conditions when Biden took office to working conditions today.
3: I just want to take a minute to think back to two and a half years ago uh, when President Biden took office. Uh, we had 10 million Americans out of work. Uh, we had our schools were closed or open in some type of a hybrid fashion. Our colleges and universities were in a hybrid fashion. Our businesses were struggling. Uh, And the delegation behind me, uh, led here in this state, uh, were able to pass the American Rescue Plan. And that American Rescue Plan got people back to work. And 10 million Americans are back at work today. I know we have challenges today, but think back to the challenge we had two and a half years ago when people weren't working.
2: Walsh did not mention the global pandemic that caused that job loss or the fact that the pandemic is still ongoing. Walsh then compared U.S. labor efforts today to those under former President Trump, saying that both private employers and federally funded workforce programs are collaborating now more than ever.
3: One of the things I think that's the difference is that we're, we're doubling down on workforce development and job training. We're doubling down on worker safety. Our motto is basically working, protecting workers morning, noon, and night, making sure that that we're, we're, we're worker-focused, but we also have a relationship with with the private sector and businesses.
2: There was no explicit mention of the upcoming fall election in just less than two weeks, where hotly contested races for U.S. Senate, governor, and a bevy of other state and local offices are on the ballot in one of the nation's closest races. While not a campaign stop, the three touted the achievements made by Democrats over the last two years. At home, Senator Ron Johnson is polling six points ahead of his Democratic challenger Mandela Barnes, according to the latest Marquette Law School poll. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin's 3rd Congressional District, which has stayed in the hands of Democrats for over two decades, Republican candidate Derek Van Orden is currently polling ahead of Democrat Brad Path by five points. The midterm election will take place on November 8th. However, early in-person voting began yesterday. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wookiehout.
1: Time is winding down for voters to prepare to cast ballots for the midterm election. As the process plays out, Wisconsin remains in the spotlight for attempts by election deniers to discredit the 2020 vote and gain influence in this year's outcomes. Democracy advocates say voters should realize that threat, but also not let it get in their way of participating. Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
4: With a few weeks left before the midterm elections, a flurry of legal wrangling continues in Wisconsin over such matters as absentee ballots. A pro-democracy group says despite these political fights, voters should feel reassured about going to the polls. Republican leaders have tried, and in some cases succeeded, to limit certain facets of processing absentee ballots. It follows a summer in which Wisconsin captured more national attention over fallout from the 2020 presidential election. Matt Rothschild of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign says the most important thing to remember is voting in the Banjer State remains safe and secure.
0: Don't let that smoke and fog get in your eyes and keep your eyes clear that voting is your right and your freedom here in our democracy that shouldn't be messed
4: with. The tension over how to oversee voting has been visible within the Wisconsin Elections Commission, which is evenly split among Democrats and Republicans. Despite the friction, Rothschild says the panel still plays a key role in maintaining free and fair elections. His group is nonpartisan, but Rothschild says voters should be mindful that some conservative candidates want to overhaul the commission. Republicans in support of tighter restrictions or dramatic procedural changes cite the need for restoring voting integrity. But Rothschild says voters should instead be reminded of ways to cast their ballot correctly in a system he says has proven its effectiveness.
5: We don't want to give anybody uh, an excuse to throw away a legitimately cast ballot by a citizen of Wisconsin.
4: He says one way to avoid any hiccups is to make sure you're registered to vote and the information is current. As for an absentee ballot, he stresses looking it over a few times in case anything was missed in filling it out, including getting witness signatures. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our Ray Trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York.
0: The time is now 6.17 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. And if you're listening to this at home, you might have a look around and see if you can find any paper bags or cardboard shipping boxes. And if you can find the manufacturer's attribution on those, most likely they were made by the Uline company. The Uline family has been a big money donor to conservative candidates across the country for years. But how did they amass so much power over American politics? That's the topic of a late-breaking ProPublica story written by Megan O'Matz, Justin Elliott, and Doris Burke. Earlier this afternoon, O'Matz sat down with WORT producer Nate helped to talk about what she found out about the Uline family.
2: So, Megan, so your story that you wrote with uh, Justin Elliott and Doris Burke with uh, ProPublica covers the Uline family. And so just sort of right out of the gate here, tell me a little bit about the Ulines today. Who is the Uline family and, and what is their business?
6: Well, yes, they are a, um, a family that is out of Illinois, but they have a very large company that is headquartered here in Wisconsin called Uline. And it is a, a packaging supply uh, company, which basically provides boxes and um, items that other businesses traditionally need. They have a giant catalog. It's like 800 pages. They have um, thousands and thousands of items. And it's not really well known to the um, average person, but um, businesses know Uline because they have um, fantastic customer service and speedy delivery. So businesses that need boxing, boxes, shipping supply items, or other things to run their warehouses and all will rely on Uline. And so what we found is that their profits have really, really soared um, with our explosion in e-commerce and our uh, desire to have um, things shipped to us in boxes directly to our homes. Um, so, so Uline has really, really grown, but not a lot of people know about them.
2: And so they are pretty well known in political circles as well as sort of these big money donors to uh, conservative candidates across the country. And uh, your story does sort of go into their family history a little bit to find out that this is uh, not something that is new for the U-lines. What what can you sort of tell me about that?
6: Well, yes, and I think this is um, really revealing. So ProPublica discovered that the uh, father of um, Richard Uline, who is uh, the owner of the Uline company here, he was, um, uh, had a very interesting history. He uh, basically was part of the John Birch Society, which was um, a significant force um, even to the right of the Republican Party back in the um, 60s and so on. And it was known for being obsessively anti-communist. Um, secretive organization. It is um, very right-wing. It was fiercely opposed to civil rights, as we detail in our story. Um, I think in the uh, march on Washington where Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, the uh, Birchers basically thought that the only people that should really be paying attention to this or going to it are police to maintain law and order so um so that was interesting and revealing to us because um Dick Uline who runs the Uline company today he's he's he has said publicly that he has gotten his politics his conservative views from his father, and um, Dick Uline has made a a family foundation that he named after his father, so uh, we thought it was very interesting um, to show the link between the history of this family's political views and how they're giving their money today.
2: And now, like you said uh, earlier, their, their wealth really sort of exploded, uh, you know, especially with the pandemic when a lot more things were ordered online and had to be shipped to us. But uh, it really seems like their money seemed to take off sometime in the mid 2000s there, at least sometime between uh, 2002 and 2018, uh, which is uh, two markers that you have in your story there. What, what can you sort of tell me about that? Do, do you know how that happened?
6: Well, let's see, the mid-2000s, I don't know. I know that they have really, well, they, they have a great business model. They basically uh, promise next-day delivery, and they promise um, customer service, excellent customer service, where if you call them, their motto is, we answer faster than 911. And we have talked to uh, folks that rely on New Line that, that, um, that they can't get this kind of service elsewhere. So they built up a really terrific business model. They're dependable, and uh, they get the job done, and so more and more people have turned to them. They also have a, a easy-to-use website, and um, so basically they have just found a really great business model. And it it was actually, as you're right, um, I mean, the pandemic really did help them help fuel their profits.
2: And so, sort of uh, going with that a little bit, uh, one portion of your story that I found really interesting was uh, how the U line sort of uh, run their company. Uh, what what can you sort of tell me about that?
6: Yeah, this was really interesting to us about how they are. Um, are very particular. Um, They demand that their employees, uh, you know, not keep a lot of items on their desk. They're very interested in cleanliness and um, they have a very strict dress code. I think they um, they don't want people to women to wear um, pantyhose or even um, they have a prohibition against corduroy for some reason. We're not not sure about that. But um, so, yeah, they have a very particular exacting standards. And some of them, uh, some of the workers, former workers we talked to considered that a little old fashioned or hard to deal with. But it's their company and uh, that's what they demand of their employees.
2: You now, so sort of as I said earlier, they've, they've donated some pretty big bucks to uh, conservative candidates across the country, including uh, Ron Johnson, uh, and they've, they've really sort of helped fund a lot of his campaign ads that we're seeing on TV constantly. What, what can you sort of tell me about their involvement with Ron Johnson?
6: Well, yes, ProPublica and some of our prior stories have reported on how Ron Johnson helped them um, get um, some very huge uh, tax breaks that was included in a Trump tax overhaul. So um, they are very supportive of uh, Senator Johnson. They've been funding some attack ads against Mandela Barnes, um, but in in return as well, they have uh, really uh, gotten some significant uh, tax breaks. As uh, you know, that they they are they are billionaires and they benefited from the massive tax overhaul that uh, Pre- uh, President Trump uh, put through Congress.
2: And they are, in, in fact, one of the largest political contributors in the country. Correct. What, what can you sort of tell me about that?
6: yes, that really surprised us. If you look at our chart, we found that, you know, about a decade ago or so, um, they were ranked about 34th in the country um, for among those that are the top federal contributors. Um, But now they are second behind George Soros, who uh, you may know is a very liberal um, figure. So the U lines are strictly giving to conservative candidates and, and causes. And so now they are, they are the number one givers in federal spending to um, conservative candidates out there. And uh, that was surprising to us again, how they have just really rocketed to first place in that regard, um, having, you know, been so Pretty far down the the line um, a decade ago, so we see that correlation between the increasing profits at Uline and the ability or the willingness of the Ulines to donate tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars to um, not only just conservative candidates but uh, really far right extremist candidates and including election deniers. Um, so uh, they are that they are the largest contributor. To the Pennsylvania Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug uh, Mastriano.
2: Uh, so, so, sort of wrapping things up here, Megan. Uh, I want to ask, what was maybe the most interesting or most surprising thing that you found while researching for this story?
6: Well, it was surely their family history and the ties to the John Birch Society and some of the um, the 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 figures and their views and all that I guess you would consider um, very um, unpleasant now or even um, racist in some regards you know they um, the father was a uh, donor to George Wallace a big segregationist and um, you you just um, that was very interesting to us
2: well Megan do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to uh, share with us before we uh, head out
6: um, I think another interesting item that we found was an email that, you know, Liz Uline had sent um, to the governor's office about a year ago, where uh, the Ulines were, like many companies, struggling for workers. They had 500 open spots, and uh, she wanted uh, Governor Evers to um, do away with the um, uh, federal extra money and in unemployment insurance that uh, people were getting to help them weather the uh, layoffs and all in the pandemic. And um, we thought that was very telling in that while they had been, their profits had soared, you know, they were making billions of dollars here. Um, they were asking the governor to cut people off of um, this uh, pandemic unemployment assistance so that, uh, you know, hoping that that would spur people to um, go back to work um, to, you know, help them fill their the slots they needed at Uline.
2: I've been talking with Megan O. Matz, reporter with ProPublica, about her most recent story on the Uline family. We just sort of scratched the surface of this story so you can read the whole thing for yourself over at ProPublica.org. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today.
6: Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: time is now 634, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us.
1: This week on Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bull returns to one of Wisconsin's more unique roadside attractions, not the house on the rock, but the rock in the house.
7: You're listening to Parks and Landmarks. An Exploration of the Underrated Outdoors I'm Sean Bull I'm sorry to say, today's story doesn't really relate to Halloween. Don't get me wrong, I love the holiday, but I don't much care for haunted landmarks. I don't really believe in ghosts, so I'm probably not the best person to introduce you to Wisconsin's most haunted forest, or whatever. That said, one of my favorite weird little roadside attractions is actually haunted. Not by phantoms, but by the forces of erosion and gravity. It did kill someone once. Is that spooky? Am I doing it right? Regardless, I'd like to take my time today to tell you the tale of Wisconsin's actual most haunted home. This is the story of The Rock in the House. As I did the last time I wrote about this place, I should make it immediately clear we are not talking about the house on the rock today. Most Wisconsinites are familiar on some level with the crazy house in the hills above Spring Green, Alex Jordan's mid century middle finger to Frank Lloyd Wright. Again, that is emphatically not the house we're talking about today. The house on the rock is a mansion built on top of a rock. The rock In the house was just a normal house that a boulder happened to fall into. Though the two attractions' names bear a surface similarity, they could not be more different in purpose. The House on the Rock is a four-hour-long march through an immense collection of everything and nothing. It technically qualifies as a museum, though it seems to be curated by the same guy who writes the dreams I have after stuffing myself with too much Chinese takeout. The only theme of the house on the rock, so far as I can figure out, is the excesses of the 19th and 20th century American empire. On the other hand, the rock in the house is the complete opposite. It's a tiny museum, maybe an acre if you count the yard outside, but the little space is laser-focused on examining a single moment in time. Specifically, April 24th, 1995, 11.38 a.m. On that morning, Maxine Anderson stood in her kitchen in Fountain City, Wisconsin. Fountain City is a community on the state's very west edge, carved in the meager space between tall wooded bluffs and the mighty blue Mississippi. Though the world has changed vastly in the last century, the Mississippi River will always be a commercial artery. Despite everything else, the town's population has remained about the same for as long as we've had census data. This constancy is reflected in the city's architecture. Other than a small quick trip and the occasional bed and breakfast, it's clear that not a lot new has been built here in a while. There's a lot of wood siding, brick, and just older styles of home construction in general. The Andersons' home is particularly interesting because it appears to be an amalgamation built out and added to over time. The house is at 440 North Shore Drive, the very north end of town. Here, the Bluffs loom especially close, mere yards from the river. This leaves just enough room for a row of single-family homes, the two lanes of State Highway 35, two sets of train tracks, and an Army Corps of Engineers base. You can mostly only see the west face of the house from the road, so, consequently, that's the side of the house that looks the best. It's a combination of concrete and red brick, standing tall above a narrow sidewalk. The yard slopes such that it's actually the basement that steps out to this walk. More brick and concrete frame the stairs that lead up to the actual front entrance. A pair of small stone lions flank the door to the sunroom on the north side of the building. This entrance, too, is locked, but you can see some of the Anderson's furniture stored inside. Continuing along a brick path, under the shade of a maple canopy, you come to the actual entrance, a white metal storm door which leads you right from a covered concrete patio into the kitchen. It was in this kitchen with its white and blue cupboards and butcher block counters in which Maxine Anderson stood 27 Aprils ago. It was 11.38 a.m., Perhaps she was thinking of preparing an early lunch. Then, without warning, a 55-ton chunk of rock freed itself from the bluff above. Rolling, it ripped through the trees and came to a crashing halt in the master bedroom, not ten feet from where Maxine stood. It was a near miss, but Maxine and Dwight were unharmed. The house, of course, was not so lucky. Big chunks of the kitchen ceiling now hung down, There were smaller cracks in the wallboard throughout the house, but the damage was concentrated at the point of impact. The bedroom was flattened, thin wood walls and a tin roof gave no resistance, and now a meteor stood in their place. Though despite being a rough disc in shape, the rock didn't roll any further. Miraculously, the rest of the house was still pretty livable. Of course, technically livable, is not the same standard as actually feeling like a home. I don't know whether the Andersons were particularly religious, but I imagine it would be easy to take this event as a pretty clear sign it was time to move. The only issue was, who would buy a house that seems just a bit cursed? We don't have time to get into it, but this wasn't even the first time this happened. A rock fell on the same house in April of 1907, And it actually killed someone the first time. Perhaps the outcome we got was the best one possible. A local real estate investor bought the house and preserved it, more or less exactly as it was the day the rock fell. For just $2, anyone could take a self-guided tour, see the rock, and try to imagine themselves in the Anderson's shoes. So it was, for a quarter of a century, a simple little museum in an idyllic corner of Wisconsin. This Memorial Day, my wife and I happened to be driving through the area, and we stopped to see how the house was doing. Something had changed. The door was locked, and taped to the glass was a new, handwritten note. It said, Someone took away your privilege of seeing the rock and info about it by taking the money box and destroying the property. Signed, Owner. So that's it, I guess. After all these years, the rock in the house is finally dead. Since no one more qualified has stepped up, let's do an autopsy, shall we? The money box the note refers to was a rusty metal toolbox strapped to the house's low wrought iron fence. The owners asked each visitor to donate $2 and secured the cash with a couple $5 padlocks. By this, I mean they asked in more handwritten notes. Everything about the rock in the house was run on the honor system. There were no employees, or even cameras. Even with the nicest guests in the world. I'd be really surprised if this was the first time the money box was stolen. Even if it was. Even if 100% of the donations were going straight to the owners. I can't imagine that covered the cost of this place. In addition to property taxes, they were for some reason paying to keep the water and electricity running. That means they were paying for heat as well, if for no other reason than to keep the pipes from bursting in the winter. They were paying for a whole house full of expenses. And for what? So we could gawk with the proper context? I can see how that would get old after a couple decades. Throw a little vandalism in the mix, and I can totally see how we got here. Luckily, if you haven't seen The Rock yet, there is some good news. The owners still allow visitors, but you can only explore around the outside. Thankfully, this includes walking right up to the rock. Additionally, the house is registered as a historic site. So even if they wanted to sell, I doubt the next owner could change much without going through a couple committees first. It's a little sad that visitors can't get the full museum experience anymore, but the rock in the house is still absolutely worth seeing if you're in the area. Though, if you visit in April, keep an ear to the ground. You never know when the impossible might happen again. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For WORT News, I'm Sean Bull.
1: And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure.
0: Well, today was certainly an improvement over yesterday, which ended up a fair bit wetter than we were hoping, although I did caution during the Monday morning forecast that the passing low-pressure circulation to our south yesterday might indeed catch us with its rain shield, which it did end up doing, but just barely, actually. The northwestern part of the listening area, up north and west of the Wisconsin River, stayed completely dry all day while we picked up a third of an inch of rain here in Madison, with generally higher amounts than to the south and the east, where uh, precipitation kept up longer yesterday. This was the first significant rainfall in two weeks here, if you can call a third of an inch significant. Uh, And even so, we're still at only 35% of our normal moisture for October, and that follows an extremely dry second half of September. So uh, this autumn so far has been downright arid. I'll just also note that yesterday's high temperature is recorded as 65 degrees, which may surprise you since we were in the low 40s through much of the afternoon. 65, though, was the reading at midnight out at the airport, so that's what goes into the books. We've got warmer temperatures on the way for this coming weekend. Uh, probably not mid-70s again like last weekend, but uh, mid-level atmospheric heights, which is what we use as a proxy for temperature, have been increasing on the uh, computer models over the past several runs for this coming weekend. So I'm hopeful that we might uh, at least make it into the low 60s if cloud cover doesn't interfere too much. That would still be a good 10 degrees above the normal high temperatures for this time of year. Have a look at the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT Weather webpage this evening, and you'll be able to see both why this current cool-off hasn't been near as extreme as the one early last week and why we'll be warming up again over the coming days. At the beginning of the image loop back on Sunday, you can see a quick-moving swirl of low pressure lift north from Nebraska up through the Dakotas to Hudson's Bay. That brings a gush of moisture up over us from the south, which is what wetted us up at the end of the weekend. A much more wrapped-up, slower-moving gyre than lifts from about central Arkansas up through northern Indiana. That was what brought the cold rain yesterday on its northwest side. And as that circulation lifts towards the eastern Great Lakes, you'll note that the southward push of air down its backside is fairly limited, both in its southward and westward scope, with the upper trough demarcating it, getting pushed fairly briskly eastward also by an incoming push of upper winds off the Pacific Ocean, which begins driving an upper ridge across central Canada. As that pushes eastward over the coming days, it's going to flood lower Canada with mild Pacific origin air and keep a zonally oriented jet branch up to our north, preventing mixing southward of any colder air, at least until we get out uh, pretty well out into next week, actually. Uh, With high pressure generally dominating south of that jet, we're going to continue our autumnal dry streak through several more days as well. The one bit of activity that might impact us over the coming weekend is the little curl in the water vapor currently uh, circulating over west southwestern Idaho. That will continue to drop southeastward towards the Red River Valley through Friday before attempting to swirl upward at us uh, through the uh, coming weekend. High clouds from that feature uh, cascading through the su- uh, skies from the south and west may hamper us getting anywhere past the low 60s over the weekend. Though light winds and shallow mixing will also be uh, inhibitory to warming over uh, several of the coming days. A more robust set of upper waves does look to start crossing North America by about the end of next week. And that appears to be our next opportunity for any significant uh, north-south air mass mixing, uh, temperature change, and rainfall around here. But back to tonight, just briefly, uh, surface high pressure, uh, which has drifted over us through the day from the northwest, will continue eastward, keeping the skies mostly clear overnight and fearing our northwesterly winds lightly southeast by morning. Temperatures will drop to the low 30s. Tomorrow, a weak residual low pressure out on the western plains in concert with light southerly winds on the backside of the high pressure to our east. We'll lift enough moisture northward up the plains to throw some high clouds over us, and that'll hold temperatures in the lower mid-50s. Southeasterly winds will increase to about 4 to 8 miles per hour. We'll drop into the upper 30s overnight with passing cloud cover on lighter southeast-to-south winds. And Friday, better clearing should allow temperatures to reach the upper 50s anyway on light south winds. We'll drop into the mid-30s overnight with mostly clear skies. And Saturday, I'm hoping to reach the low 60s, though light winds and shallow mixing will make that something of a challenge. High clouds may also start to re-invade skies, especially later in the day, and those will re-thicken then a bit overnight, holding temperatures in the low 40s. And Sunday, we should be back towards the low 60s, though high clouds from the passing system to our south may hamper temperatures at that time to a certain degree. Uh, the temperature is currently 47 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 31. Winds are uh, light out of the northwest around 5 miles per hour. Uh, completely clear, just a few strands of cirrus passing over from the west. And the uh, barometer is at 30.08 inches of mercury and rising.
1: It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to October 27th, 1966, when anti-war activists at the Stock Pavilion heckle Senator Edward Kennedy with such vigor that he cuts his speech short and leaves the stage. Stu Levitan explains how it went down and what happened next on this week's Madison in the 60s.
5: All these come on They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s October twenty seventh, 1966, Senator Edward M. Kennedy gets heckled. As the 1966-67 school year opened, the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, the CEWV, declared it would not allow members of the federal government to speak undisturbed on the UW campus. So, when it was announced that President Kennedy's youngest brother was coming to campus on October twenty seventh to help the gubernatorial campaign of old family friend Patrick J. Lucy, CEWV made plans to disrupt. That Thursday afternoon at the Stock Pavilion, about 35 committee members grab spots among the crowd behind the stage. Their signs, Bring the Troops Home Now, appear in Kennedy's photos, and their voices with that same demand are picked up by his microphones. Out in the crowd of 3,000, eight CEWV leaders are set to call out their questions. Mimeographed sheets with a dozen questions have been distributed to their supporters for those who will join in. Rising to speak to a standing ovation, Kennedy is immediately peppered with questions from the committee leaders, which he repeatedly ignores. Many members throughout the crowd and others begin catcalling and shouting for Kennedy to talk about the war. Unable to proceed, Kennedy invites CEWV Chair Robin David to speak from the podium, David reiterates the Social Workers' Party slogan, Bring the Troops Home Now, but is unprepared to debate a United States senator, and obviously outmatched by the charismatic Kennedy. Aware that Kennedy has won the room, CEWV leaders quickly decide to disrupt his speech with continued heckling, which spreads. Down front, Leah Zeldin provides some of the loudest and most urgent shouts of the afternoon. I have four sons, she cries out, and I don't want them to die in Asia. A student tosses a coat over her head. She throws it off and keeps it up. Others, C.E.W.V. and not, join in, and the heckling continues for nearly half an hour. Kennedy finally gives up, unable to finish his remarks, and leaves the stage. Although the committee did not direct the widespread heckling of Kennedy after he dismissed David, the group initiated the overall action and so gets the blame. Reaction is swift and harsh. UW President Fred Harvey Harrington calls the event disgraceful. Chancellor Robin Fleming says it's a sad day and asks the Wisconsin Student Association and faculty to, quote, investigate this matter further and report to me more than 8,000 students sign an apology. That evening, the Madison Common Council unanimously passes a resolution, sponsored by all 22 alders, apologizing to Kennedy and inviting him to come back and speak on city-owned property. The faculty's Student Conduct and Appeals Committee holds a special Saturday session and declares that deliberately interfering with a university-sanctioned speech quote may constitute grounds for university disciplinary action, not excluding the possibility in flagrant or repeated cases of suspension or expulsion. Sunday, the powerful University Committee holds a special session and votes to create new policies and procedures to protect their rights to speak and hear. Veteran protest leader Bob Cohn calls the Stock Pavilion action, quote, a defeat for the national anti-war movement and mounts an unsuccessful effort to oust the CEWV leadership. The Wisconsin Student Association, sympathizing, quote, with the frustrations that would prompt the heckling, finds, quote, a technical violation of the principle of free speech. But because the university had been inconsistent in enforcing policies and procedures, the WSA does not suspend any CEWV rights, opting instead to put the committee on provisional status for the rest of the semester. WSA Senator and History graduate student Paul Soglin opposes even that level of discipline, saying students should be proud that CEWV insisted that Kennedy honor the university rule requiring a question period. Kennedy had, in fact, agreed to do so, but for some reason that was not made publicly known. It wouldn't have mattered. CEWV would still have heckled. Although he doesn't impose any discipline, Fleming is contemptuous of the disruptors, comparing their reliance on, quote, the moral imperative to the argument used by the Ku Klux Klan, Nazis, and Chinese Red Guards. And he warns that actions like this threaten free speech on campus. People do not accept harassing a speaker, so he cannot speak, he tells a meeting of the Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union in late November. This, more than anything else, will bring action down upon us. It certainly brings action down upon the protest movement. On December 12th, the faculty overwhelmingly adopts a formal policy against obstruction codified as Section 11.02 of the University Rules and Regulations. There is no ambiguity about its cause. This may be called the Ted Kennedy Section, says its chief drafter, political science professor David Feldman. The resolution adopting the rule, immediately binding on the Madison campus, states that those attending a program sponsored by a campus group, quote, have the duty not to obstruct it, and the university has the obligation to protect the right to listen and participate. Exactly what those terms mean, Feldman says, will be up to the dean of students, and the Student Life and Interest Committee. It was Professor Fellman who in 1960 offered the successful motion to end the university's popular and successful boxing program after national champion Charlie Moore died after a tournament bout at the fieldhouse. Within a year, his resolution creating Section 11.02 would lead to even more profound and historic consequences. The Daily Cardinal denounces the, quote, Disgraceful display at the stock pavilion and endorses this faculty action as a way to ensure free speech. When student heckling impairs the ability of others to listen, it editorializes, this is an abuse of the right of free speech. No one has a monopoly on truth, and no one has a monopoly on rights. The Ted Kennedy section makes this quite clear. Most students, the paper declares, quote, were disgusted by the CEWV's action, which, quote, disgraced the university. And the backlash isn't confined to campus. State Senator Fred Risser warns that conservatives controlling state government will cite this incident in pushing to cut the university's budget. He's right. They do. History professor Harvey Goldberg, faculty advisor to the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, takes the long view. A violation of the free forum took place, which must exist for all, he acknowledges, but it was in, quote, an urgent attempt to focus attention where attention belongs. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, free speech-honoring WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And thanks for your attention. That does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our sole reporter was Mike Mullen from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Cademan spun the dials this evening and mixed our sounds live on the air. Nate Wiggy helped produce the newscast, and Shali Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.